Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. It, it kind of goes back down to, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, did it actually make a sound? And what that three-minute video did was enabled people to hear what we have done. Welcome to Intersection. I'm Bobby Rutu, storyteller. Tell me, mm-hmm. give us the, the elevator pitch. Okay. David Vaughn, born and raised in Simpsonville, South Carolina, um, civil engineering degree from University of North Carolina, Charlotte, um, worked in civil engineering project management uh, for most all of my life. I actually spent a lot of time with Fleur in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, 2000, December 2009, started volunteering my time, um, attended a, the first meeting uh, with the Episcopal Diocese of Upper South Carolina about a water project. And when I attended that meeting, I met these group of students that called themselves Clemson Engineers for Developing Countries and um, worked with them for pretty much about nine months, finally went down with them to Haiti. And when we went down there, I had just come out of Afghanistan. And I was the chief engineer of the Southern Expansion, and I looked at one of the stakeholders with EUSC and um, said, you realize I do this for a living? He says, you're now the project manager. A few years ago, the people of Kanj, Haiti, needed water. Some of them had to walk a 1,000 feet down the mountain and climb back up, lugging 40-pound buckets of water. Today, a new system pipes clean water up the mountain and into Kanj. A team of Clemson engineering students working with the Haitian partners helped make this happen. Clemson Engineers for Developing Countries, CDEC, began in the fall of 2009 when seven students in civil engineering noticed that something was missing from their curriculum. CDEC designed a system that would filter out large contaminants, kill microbes and ultraviolet radiation and chlorine, and then transport the water through the village in new pipes buried underneath recently paved roads. It would be the first chlorinated municipal water system in the country of Haiti. I met CDEC professor in practice David Vaughn in 2016 as we began telling the story of Clemson engineers traveling to Conj, Haiti. As they continue to work alongside the Haitian people to service the municipal water system. Here is the interesting intersection. Clemson engineers were not traveling just to build and maintain this water system. They were traveling to Conj to work alongside the Haitian people, building global relationships an educational experience for this new global economy, an educational experience outside the walls of the traditional classroom. Um, So when we started it out, um, I think there was seven civil engineers that were in the program. These were kids who were do-gooders. And um, now we're at times over 100 students in the program. Um, It's no longer just about civil engineering anymore. We have 28 to 33 different disciplines that are in the program. Outside of engineering as well? Absolutely. Across all seven colleges. So it's really across a curriculum at Clemson. You don't have to be an engineer to be a part of this. That's correct. And what we've really understood is that engineering isn't necessarily about the engineer you think of. Engineering simply means problem solver. And when you go through there and look at what we're trying to tackle in the central plateau of Haiti, it's about solving problems. So tell me, um, when if you had to describe CDEC, uh, first of all, explain the acronym mm-hmm. and explain how it fits into Clemson Engineering as a college. Okay. 
What uh, so CEDC is Clemson Engineering for Developing Countries, and um, there's been a lot of times we've struggled with the name engineering just because people are scared of it. Uh, but once again, there they they really do take a hold of it. So we actually have marketing majors that that work in there. We've got you know econ students, um, but where it benefits the university is we use project based learning. And so every single team that works together actually has a project statement that they're working against. And one of the things that what it does is actually supplements the curriculum that is there. Um, we're actually doing a lot of assessments right now to better understand what are the outcomes that the students are actually achieving. Um, there's been a lot of things that we've, um, we're wrong about over time. I mean, first of all, uh, Jeff and I had really established that we could only have seniors and graduate students in the program because they were the only ones with enough technical acumen. And then we wrote into the bylaws of the program that it was going to become evergreen. Well, students kept graduating and leaving. And so you really were never get your feet up under you. And so then we said, okay, bring in juniors. Then it was like, bring in sophomores. Okay, then it was finally like, okay, bring in the freshmen straight out of high school. And when we did that, that first year, those freshmen were outperforming some seniors. And then they stayed for four years. And Aaron Gordon was a classic example of one of those students. And by the time they got to their senior year, these students were carved out of wood. I mean, you could literally drop them anywhere on earth and they would change the world. So tell me, um, many people, when they think about a college of engineering and a program that operates inside that, the first thing a parent or external person will think, is there a class involved? Do I get credits? Why do I do this? Should I, you know, what are the, what's the makeup of the discipline? So first of all, we meet every Friday afternoon. Um, it is a classroom environment. Um, uh, we meet everyone collectively and essentially every three weeks you're on stage presenting. Okay. Um, the next time hour is we're actually spending time planning where every team breaks down and are working on their individual projects. Um, and tell us a little bit about what are some of the projects that these students are working on that are pretty much outside of the classroom mm -hmm. curriculum. Talk, give me a gamut of the projects. So the first project was the, uh, the municipal water system in Conj, um, which just so happens to be the first chlorinated municipal water system in the entire country of Haiti. And that has been acknowledged by the UNWHO. The next project uh, we'll talk about is the biodigesters. Okay. And this takes sanitary sewer. And we actually have that connected to uh, the school that has 1,500 students and another building. And we can process that sanitary sewer. And it has a 99.98% efficacy against E. coli and cholera, which means it kills it all. And it produces methane. So it's actually a net plus system. Um, that helps prevent disease from getting into the environment. Uh, we, all, we also have, for example, economic development projects. And one of those was a fish farm, aquaculture, uh, where they're actually growing tilapia. And this is the one thing we've got to understand is that when we were working with communities, it's not about giving them clean water or sanitation or whatever it may be, is that we've got to think about the community holistically. And if they can't start paying for their own in the future, then we're really not installing sustainable solutions. Um, one of the current projects we're working on is a hydroelectric project uh, where they're actually the students have gone down there and we have extra water that comes across the dam in Haiti. In Conj, Haiti. And um, we're able to take that water and run it downhill, turn a turbine, turn a generator and actually supply power 
And so the students have gone down and actually measured the water coming from the dam in Haiti. Um, they've able to understand how much energy it'll create. They've been doing electrical assessments in the compound. And when everything is said and done, uh, right now, the stakeholder we're working with, which is Zambra La Sante, is um, they're paying around $250,000 a year for electricity. And this system will have a return on investment in less than two years. So some of these things are no-brainers. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Clemson Engineering. And so here's one of the reasons why I got interested in this project. Number one is, as many of you do not know, I started off at Clemson as an engineering student. Um, I came from a family of engineers. And when I got to my second, my right after the end of my sophomore year, I've in civil engineering, I think I took Professor Bob's class, and I can't remember if it was statics or what it was, but it kicked my butt so much that I was like, you know what, maybe I'm not an engineer. But when I think about my time as an engineering student, and then I turned out to be a math student, a math undergrad, um, uh, the reason why I like this CDEC so much is that if that was installed when I was an undergrad, I wonder where I'd be today. Talk about how the student it takes those statics and dynamics and, you know, that physics and that calculus and all that stuff. And it says, hey, we got that. We're going to really show you what engineers do. Talk about the, the connection that turns into real world solutions after Clemson. Right. So, you know, a lot of students, well, first of all, I think everyone learns differently to start with. And, and going through and giving them a problem. And then what they've got to do is digest that problem. And then as they're going through there, they start saying, well, you know, what you know, literature do we need to have to pull in? Or how do we break this problem down? Or how do we solve this problem? And then a lot of times they're going back to their faculty members and learning how to apply what they're learning in the classroom to this real world problem. I mean, in the end, um, if you start looking at what industry is looking for, is they're actually wanting students who can basically think for themselves, who can solve their own problems. And what this does is it brings an element of the real world into the classroom. And uh, rather than just learning from a textbook, you know, uh, or from a professor standing in front of the room, what this does is it is truly applied science, you know, and they're able to go through there and solve real world problems. But the other piece is, is that as projects are being performed, you know, if you go there and ask an engineer, what's the most perfect design? It's one that was never installed. <laughs> and the reality is, is that you can go through there and do all the designs. But once you get to the field, you run into a whole new set of problems. And I think the students who go through there and can see the full life cycle of a project are much more prepared for the real world. Let's start talking about the real world. How did CDEC find Conj? I believe that was Jeff Plumbly, and he ended up running into a gentleman, um, and he got invited into a meeting. He started having meetings with uh, Dr. Harry Morse and I think Kip Dushan, who was with the CDC. And um, at some point in time, they he was invited to actually go down and visit Conj. Um, let me back up a little bit and talk about the Episcopal Diocese of Upper South Carolina. The Episcopal Diocese of Upper South Carolina has had a relationship with Conch Haiti for nearly 40 years. Why? 
So Father LaFontante met the bishop from South Carolina, and they started talking. It was really a happenstance connection. And he was he, Father LaFontante uh, was the priest in Conj, Haiti. Gotcha. And they met, and they started thinking about collaboration. That is correct. When we talk about Conj, people, when they think of Haiti, you know, the first thing I thought of when I thought of Haiti was the first time I went on a cruise ship and I stopped in one side of the touristy side of Haiti and I had a perception of a beach. Describe Haiti to people. And then once you describe Haiti and the Haitians, let's talk about Conj, but let's talk about the Haitians first. My first trip into Haiti was in 1980. And when we traveled down, we drove to Miami. And Miami was the dirtiest, ugliest town I'd ever seen in my life. And I couldn't wait to get out of Miami. And then the next day we flew to Haiti. I spent two weeks in Haiti. And there was little infrastructure. You had sewer running in the streets, water that you could not drink, um, people without jobs, um, disease, um, just incredible suffering as far as people goes. And, and I was really probably a freshman in high school when I saw that. When I flew back into Miami after that trip, it was the most beautiful place I'd seen in my life. Where we work in Haiti now is in the Central Plateau, and it's far away from Port-au-Prince, but... It's northeast a little bit. That's correct. And, um, but we're also dealing with a population that probably makes um, around a dollar a day. And most people can't fathom making $350 a year. And it's, it's beyond subsistence farming. It's, it's it really, people are just barely eking by a living. So it's hard for people to relate. You can go down there and visit and see, and it's shocking. And one thing that comes from the students is, is they'll see our video. They see the pictures, they hear the stories, but when they go see it and they smell it, they start to understand that it's real. And it's really and truly, it's, it's a country that has very little infrastructure. And if you think about what enables us as Americans to be who we are, it's about investment in infrastructure. And even though we talk about our failing infrastructure, imagine this country without infrastructure, because that is what enables us to be who we are. You know, we flew into, well, you, you have Port-au-Prince. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first time I went there, I remember the first couple of impressions were that there's trash everywhere. Mm -hmm. So there's not a trash system. Correct. So I remember just seeing, you know, just boxes and just stuff all over the place. So that was a little visually overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second thing I noticed was the Haitian people are happy people. That's correct. That's what I love. Here we... We fly into this place that, in many accounts, is a third world country. Mm-hmm. You know, no infrastructure, limited infrastructure, but there are happy people. Right. You've heard for years that, you know, people talk about, you know, money doesn't make you happy. And 
but it's hard to believe, you know, when you're Americans, because the point is that the more money you have, the more possessions you can have. But when you go to Haiti and everyone you meet, they're happy to see you. Um, they're happy together. It's not just because you're there, but generally speaking is they have a love for life. Okay. And, um, I just I wish you could model that and how that is, but but really and truly is that you know I think we've got to look at life a little bit differently, and we've got to figure out is that what is it that what's our driver in life? In other words, why are we trying to do what we're trying to do? And um, you know, is it are we chasing money, or are we trying to have impact and, and change the world? And I think that to some degree, everyone needs to be focusing on you know things outside of yourself. Um, because when all you try to do is just acquire assets, you kind of lose sight of what life is about. And I think really and truly is that, um, Haitians are good at living life. And so one of the things that, you know, you also learn is that Americans are time-based. So we have meetings at a certain time, we set certain parameters for it and, and everything is on a schedule. When I'm first going down there, and I keep in mind, I'm going down there as a professional project manager to help run this job. And people may not show up for the meetings on time, or especially if it rains. If it rains, the meeting's off. <laughs> but um, the first thing is when you sit down is they're going to ask you about your family. They're going to want to know and, and understand that you're doing well. And so there's a lot of care for each other. And then once you get beyond all that, then you can start talking about the business. But it really is, it, it's a relationship-based society. I mean, they really do care for each other. And I think that's one thing that is very different that you see between the cultures. What attracted to me to this project was not so much about the Haitian people, but was about the need. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously down in Port-au-Prince, there's a need, there's an infrastructure need. There's so many needs. I mean, uh, America just wants to solve problems and they could just dump their their infrastructure on there and they could just solve problems. But we weren't about that. Clemson isn't about that. There was a, a different type of problem that was up the mountain. So let's, let's make our way up the mountain to Conge. And to me, the first time going to Conge, there was a mood shift from going to from Port-au-Prince all the way up to Conge. Describe Conge for us. So to describe Conge, let me, I'm going to need to go back and give you some history. So the United States decided to help Haiti, you know, back in the 1950s. And they wanted to supply electric power to Port-au-Prince. And uh, so there was this um, nice river there uh, located near Conge. And they decided to install a hydroelectric dam. And I believe it was completed around 1958. And, um, and if I also remember correctly, that it was another probably 40 years before it actually generated electricity. But when the dam was installed, the water started to rise. And the government did not tell the people that the water would rise. And all these families who had these fertile lands were displaced. They didn't have a place to grow their crops. And um, they settled at the top of this hill that they call Conj today. They lived there for probably another 10 to 15 years. 
and that's when Father LaFontante arrived. And he saw this population that had huge needs, no water, massive amounts of disease, no education, just decimated population. And he started to help them. He started drawing in support um, that he could locally as much as he could. Then in the 1978, he, he was able to get the Episcopal Diocese of Upper South Carolina involved. Uh, and that continued to um, grow the relationship. There was school there. There was a hospital there. And then Father LaFontaine said, we really need water. And so they brought in a couple of engineers from Greenville, South Carolina. And he was explaining to them that, you know, we need water in the conch. And they're, they're like, well, you know, you've tried to drill wells here, and, you know, 500 feet deep and there's no water. He said, yeah, but there's a spring at the bottom of the mountain. And I believe in a miracle. And they're like, yeah, but water doesn't go uphill. He says, you know, I think God will find a way. And so the engineers went down and surveyed it. And they actually talked with another engineer with Duke Energy. And they started, you know, combining thoughts. And they said, hey, can we use a turbine to take this water and then turn, take a pump and push it up the mountain? So between 1983 to 1985, they completed that project. And there's a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains, which is by Tracy Kidder, uh, mainly about Paul Farmer, but it tells the story of Conch. And one of the things they talk about is actually having clean water delivered. And at the time, that water being delivered from the, the spring had zero fecal coliforms uh, per 100 mil. And so it was clean at the time. And they saw huge health benefits because they actually had water. So... Over time, that relationship, you know, with the Episcopal Diocese continued to grow. They had one of the best schools in the entire country, uh, the really only operable hospital um, in the country. They had several other satellite hospitals. And then we're going to go all the way up to January 12th, 2010, when the earthquake happened. And many of the hospitals in the country um, down around Port-au-Prince were decimated, completely destroyed. And then you had this huge population that went to Conj looking for help. They cleared the church out. Every square inch they had that they could actually put people to service them. It really became the recovery center for the country of Haiti. And Zama La Sante, the Episcopal Diocese, everyone was pitching in everywhere they could. But what it really did was push the need for the water system because the water system that we were already doing design work on was close to collapsing after running for you know almost uh, 25 30 years the mechanical systems were really almost starting to fail and the dam was literally being eroded underneath the pump was you know corroded. Um, but the other part was is the water coming from that spring that used to be clean now had 200 fecal coliforms per 100 mil so literally anyone who was drinking from that could get deadly ill. Go forward a couple more months, you know, to October 2010. The next disaster hit Haiti, which was cholera. And it ran the country and no one could stop it. And the reason they couldn't stop it is that no one had invested in infrastructure. And everyone is living on the front line, drinking water that they know that they might catch cholera from and die. And we've literally had thousands of people, hundreds of thousands affected. And, you know, probably 10,000, I have to get the exact number, who've died from the disease. Right now, those same people are still vulnerable. I mean, just this last month when the rating season started, 
Doman, which is an adjacent town, has experienced 50 cholera cases who came into the hospital and they're basically trying to correct. The point is these people are living on the front line of disease. A couple of years ago, Zombie La Sante came to Clemson to meet with us and we were working on a contract and working on a relationship. Yeah. And who is that for everybody that doesn't know? Zombie La Sante means partners in health in Creole. And so this is really the organization that Paul Farmer and Father LaFontaine formed. And um, it really is, it's the, actually the largest NGO in the country of Haiti. Um, their uh, chief of staff, her name is Liz Campo, you know, came here uh, to Clemson to the campus. And she was explaining that they had been invited to a water conference. And, you know, this was October um, 2017. But they had a paper uh, that was due, an abstract, in May 2017. And she says, you know, and they want us to talk about microbiology. What are we going to talk about? And I'm like, talk about cholera. They said, well, how would we talk about cholera? I said, go to UNICEF and get the experiential data for how it spread across the country. And I said, what you do is look at really October 2010, look at how it spread across the country you know, up until today, and then I want you to do one thing. And she says, what's that? I said, I want you to go look on the map at Conch. She's like, what am I going to say? I said, when you see it, you'll know. So about two months later, she calls me up and says, David, there's a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? She says, I've reviewed the data, and there's a hole in the data. I said, what do you mean there's a hole in the data? She says, I'm going through this, and basically where all the cases are on the map are red. She says, the entire country of Haiti is red except for conch and it's a white splotch on the map i said you're correct she says what would no no that means we're not collecting the data i said no that means we don't have any cholera she said well wait are you telling me that investment in infrastructure prevents disease i'm like yes so what we're able to do is when we went to the water conference we were able to explain to people that if you invest in infrastructure you can prevent disease we're now meeting with the UN WHO. We're now meeting with USAID and they're starting to realize that if we can invest in this way, we can actually start saving lives. You know, the first meeting we had was last year, which was June 23rd, 2017, when the, the United Nations World Health Organization came to Conj to meet with us. We toured the entire water system from top to bottom and we went and reviewed the biodigesters. And they told us openly that they had done assessments on water systems and sanitation systems across the entire country of Haiti. And these were the, this was the first chlorinated municipal water system in the entire country. And they're now pushing to see if we can actually establish a center of excellence there to bring others in around the country to show them what the art of the possible is. Let's talk about those first discussions and how we had these conversations of how do we tell the story of Conj? That isn't an educational video, but is an emotional video. Let's ha let's go back to that first meeting. What do you remember? That first meeting was um, it was not a normal meetings, um, mainly because as an engineer, there's a certain methodology that you use to solve problems, and sometimes really telling a story is you've got to get something that has visual representation that people can see. There's got to be, you know, a situation that's the problem. 
Um, we've got to find ways to tell the story of how that was solved and then the benefits that come from that that really um, help you tell that short in a, in a very short way of doing that or a short segment. So really and truly is that this is where I don't know that we had the skill sets internally to do that. And that's really where I think that um, having you in the room leading us and guiding us to pull the elements of what will be in the story to create the storyline. Um, but really and truly is that I don't even think that we had the complete storyline nailed down until we went down there. Right. And we knew that we wanted it had it wanted to be around water. We wanted it, there was a problem that would come up that had to be addressed. Um, and there would be this moment where it was a, there was an accomplishment and then you could see the benefits that came from that. But what was really nice is that um, I think through a lot of the filmmaking, there were some snippets of, of stock film that we had from the past. Um, the, for example, the turbine going down the mountain. Um, those things are very powerful for us. Others may not know what that is, but what that shows is the incredible amount of teamwork of how collaborative it is. And um, this is one thing that I really do think that I think beyond just the clean water, I think what I took from the story in the end was about, it wasn't about engineering. It was about Clemson working hand in hand with locals. So, you know, when we started planning this project, you know, we sat down and we looked at it and like, we want to tell a story about how a Clemson student an engineering student can come and get an engineering degree and change the world. Mm -hmm. Now that's a big cliche, <laughs> right? I mean, everybody wants to do that. Everybody wants to showcase that. So we started thinking about it and we had this meeting and what you did, which was lay out a map. Mm -hmm. This is where the village is. And this is where the water comes from. And it is roughly about 12 to 15 stories below. And in my mind, you know, you can't visualize that. And I kept on hearing the story of the steps. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the steps. You know, the village is at the very top of the mountain, mm -hmm. and the water is at the very bottom of the mountain. Right. And these aren't just average steps. Right. To get, and the steps weren't there before. Mm -hmm. Talk about where the water was and where it was be ta it was taken and what happened with that. So. Before the water system, people literally had to climb down the mountains with buckets and bring the water up. There were no steps. Um, you and I would not make it. <laughs> um, I barely made it the first time I went up the steps. The the steps literally had just been completed in the last five years. Um, they were they were coming up the mountain, and there's 535 of them. They're not built per code, which means that they have different sizes and everything, and it really plays havoc on you. They are, um, some of them are at least a foot tall. Right. Um, the total rise of the water from the bottom is 1,100 feet. Okay. And so the pressure for the water in your house is probably around 60 PSI. Um, at the very bottom, when we're pumping the water up, we're around 475 PSI to basically get the water to rise that entire height. Um, it's a very powerful system to do that. It takes about 24 horsepower to push that water up the mountain. And so there is a spring mm -hmm. that comes through the mountain, 
where the water comes through a dam by a dam that y'all created so that the water is pushed down and powers a turbine, Mm -hmm. which turns around and pushes water up the mountain through two sets of pipes Mm -hmm. that sit in what? Five or six cisterns? Four cisterns. Four cisterns at the very top. Right. And before they go to the cisterns, they are chlorinated. They are filtered and chlorinated, yes. Filtered and chlorinated, and they sit in these cisterns. Mm -hmm. And because they're at the top of the mountain, they then create pressure to push down. Right, we use gravity. To fountains throughout the village, correct? Mm -hmm. And so now these people don't have to walk down the mountain. They can walk out of their house to a fountain. Right. So now we have this area that has clean water. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yes. How long did it take to build that system to where it is today? Is it a 40-year project, 30 years? It happened in stages? Well, the first part of the project was done, uh, like I said, between 1983 to 85. And when it was done at that time, uh, there was engineers from Upper South Carolina, and they actually had hired a Haitian contractor to do the work. But it's much smaller scale, Okay. The scale that we went to today is we have a very robust dam. And when you talked about the spring, when most people think about springs, springs aren't that powerful. This is okay? a big spring. Okay. This spring, we've measured it, and depending on its weather, wet or dry season, has around 24,000 gallons per minute. Okay. So for how big is that? Most people's normal swimming pool that you'll see out behind their house is around 24,000 gallons. Imagine filling that up in one minute. Okay, and that happens every minute, 24 hours a day. <laughs> so there's a lot of water. Um, when we capture that water in the dam, it flows down to that turbine, and there's 3,500 gallons a minute that goes to the turbine, which turns a pump. Now, what this is is a mechanical advantage. So for every 70 gallons that goes to that turbine, it lifts one gallon up the mountain. And so really and truly is that we're actually the entire system runs off gravity. There's no electricity in the system at all. Um, once it goes up to the filter building, it goes through there. And we have huge cartridge filters that the you know, water flows through. Those things are washed a couple times a day. And then we have a chlorinator. We literally use chlorine tablets like you would see in a swimming pool. And that's what we chlorinate the water system with. And then it goes to uh, the cisterns. And what we found is, is that the cisterns are actually part of the treatment system. The literally water goes in there and sits and is, is very still and almost acts as a clarifier. So any sediment literally falls to the bottom. And when it comes out of the fountain, it's crystal clear. And so what we found is that we're able to actually come up with consistency. Now, keep in mind, we've got to, you know, clean behind the dam at times. We've got to go in, you know, we're constantly working on the, in the filter building. And once a month, we're cleaning out the cisterns. So there's lots of maintenance involved to keep the system running. But the point is, is that it's actually a very low cost system um, that, you know, others are trying to figure out how to replicate. Now a quick break to give a quick shout out to the network that supports Intersection, Touchpoint Media, a collection of podcasts dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare, including digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health. Let's rejoin the show.
you have worked with the people side by side in Kanj to harness the power of the water mm-hmm. to provide healthy, clean water. Mm-hmm. And now you're looking at harnessing the power of water to provide electricity to the village. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how that evolution of we went from water to now a massive power bill that was being created for this village and the hospital. And you started doing some math problems and started recognizing this. Let's talk about that. Well, first thing is, is, you know, in the Haitians will tell you that water is life. And and I think that's evident in the water system. Um, And the thing is that we're going through there and we're always realized that, you know, we're, we're using, we've got three turbines connected to the system. We only run about two at a time. But we had extra water that kept coming over the dam. And we're like, so we have extra power here we could utilize in some way, shape, or form. Um, and then the question was, do we have enough to make electricity and make it worthwhile? We started having conversations with Zamala Sante to understand how much power they're using. And they didn't have a real good idea. Um, I even started asking about how much you know, were, were the bills that they were paying. And, um, so we finally figured out that they were paying a quarter million dollars a year. Okay. On top of that, they have a generator. Okay. And that generator runs probably 40% of the time sometimes. So the bill is probably much higher. It may be closer to $300,000 a year, um, that's cost them to actually supply electricity. We went down and we were trying to figure out, okay, now how do you measure the water? And when I was going back and reading the original reports that the guys were doing back in the 80s, they were literally taking oranges and dropping in the stream to try to measure how much water there was. How do you measure How do you measure a flow of water and what the opportunity is? Talk about that from an engineering standpoint. It's very simple. Well, it, it's, it sounds simple, but it's not that simple. So first of all, you've got to understand is that what is the cross-sectional area of the water that's flowing? So the and diameter it, of the tube that the water's coming through? Right. Or stream because or it's going to be flat. Because we originally the water flowing over the dam, we were going to try to measure it there. But the problem is there's so much variability, and we weren't going to be able to really get really good numbers. But we do have um, a waste pipe where we can actually drain behind the dam, and so if we can get all the water run through there. We can actually put an orifice plate in, which is like it looks like a donut. Yeah, it's a donut, and you put it in. And why you, why are you doing that? So once we understand if we can get that donut filled with water and create a jet, a water jet, and we can understand how much water is standing behind the dam and we can measure how many feet there difference there is, we can understand how much pressure there is behind it. From there, we can actually calculate how many gallons per minute. And then what does that gallons per minute provide you from a mathematical situation to look at the turbines pumping the water, but also... To create electricity, possibly. So from there, what we we were able to measure is we had just over 9,000 gallons per minute. Then we had survey instruments where we can actually measure how much fall we have. So in other words, we have probably close to 60 feet that that water will fall, and we can actually harness the power from that 9,000 gallons per minute at, you know, uh, 60 feet of fall. From there, we calculate that we should be able to generate, um, and now we're not using the entire 9,000, but we're talking around 6,000 gallons per minute. Um, We would be able to generate right at 35 kilowatts of power that could be supplied to conch. And put kilowatts of power in terms of the average person. What will that do for them? 
in Haiti or here? In, 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 well, in for those people, what would it give them? So first of all, you've got the operations of the hospital, which is reliant on power. So if they're doing x-rays or running the computer systems or whatever it may be, they need electricity to do that. Um, they've also got kitchens. They've got, you know, in cons, they have businesses that they're running. So they have refrigeration and lots of other school. things. The school. Um, but the most interesting thing about electricity are these things called light bulbs. <laughs> okay. And here in the United States, we have a hard time getting children to study. And in Haiti, there are lights throughout the compound. And if you walk through the compound at night, you'll see children sitting under the streetlight studying because they're trying to make it in life. And they realize that studying will help them get there. Light bulbs change their world. And because these kids are having to go out there and do chores, they're going to school and they're trying to study. But right now, they can only study during the day. The actual concept of having a light bulb changes their world. So that's one thing is, is I think is education is one of the biggest benefits for the children. And it's because of the light bulb. I want to kind of start connecting some dots here. One of the moments that was very powerful for me, that was turned on the light bulb, so to speak, for me as we started figuring out this narrative, was the moment when we were putting the orifice plate in. You and I both know this moment. Uh, we've, <laughs> I've taken pictures of it. I've got tons. I could talk about it for hours. Is two Clemson students, their job was to get down into where the water was and install this orifice plate. And then drill, using drills, drilling uh, screws to hold it in place so when they turn the water back on, they could measure so they could figure out all these things we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. They get down there and they start putting it in and all of a sudden the orifice place just flies out. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to put it in and these two students are working hard. They're taking their clothes, their tops off just because they're getting soaking wet and they're pushing it in. And the Haitian people are looking and they're like, they start jumping in. And I had this great picture of this community of people working together to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. The Haitian people and the Clemson students didn't see them as one group was better than the other. Mm -hmm. They saw themselves as a collaborative unit, mm -hmm. as a team of family members working together to solve a problem. And so this great picture that I was lucky enough to capture is here are the Haitian friends and the Clemson friends holding this orifice plate in while someone is measuring because at that moment in time, it was the aha moment that we can not only provide water, but we can provide electricity to this, this whole place in that one moment. And so when we think about that one moment, that's a tough story to tell. It really is a tough story to tell in three minutes mm -hmm. or three and a half. So let me ask you this. Why is it, was it so important for us to come tell this story for Clemson? First of all, um, one is the story you told really delivered a message, and it was an emotional message, and, and it was true in so many senses of the word. When people ask me, what is Clemson Engineers for Developing Countries, where do I start? I mean, do I talk about the classroom environment? 
Do I talk about the individual students? Do I talk about the impacts or the outcomes of the students? There's so much. Literally, I can go on for hours and hours. And we have publication after publication and, you know, acknowledgments and awards and all these things we can talk about. The point is, is that having the ability to condense that down to visually show who, what, when, where, and how impacts emotion in three minutes is a challenge. And that is a service that I think adds value beyond the actual work that we're doing. Because the point is, is that it, it kind of goes back down to, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, did it actually make a sound? And what that three minute video did was enabled people to hear what we had done. So really and truly is that you brought um, the story to where it was accessible to everyone. So, um, but outside of just beating your chest a little bit, why is it so important to contextualize that story in a way that the broader audience can see it? The people that love Clemson, the alumni, the, the potential students, the higher ups, why was it important to tell that story in a way that wasn't what you'd done previously, but in a new way? First of all, I think it's one is to grab their attention to, to one is um, to show what Clemson has done, what Clemson is doing, but also to make you look a little deeper and say, what else is Clemson doing? Or to say, I want to know more about this program. And so, um, but I think more than anything is that there are a lot of different audiences who will look at that video and they'll walk away with something different. So if you take a student who is in high school and sees that video and they see a student going down to Haiti and working, starting in the classroom and going down there, they're going to say, wow, I can do that. Okay. Or you start looking at and you start talking about the faculty at the university. They can sit there and say, wow, we're doing work in these areas. And, oh, man, we need, I need to be able to teach students who can do those types of things. But then, you know, I met with industry folks, okay, who see that video and they're like, wow, you're preparing my future employees. Okay. And then you look at the alum who come from Clemson. Okay. And they see that video and they get pride and they're like, we are changing the world. So the point is that no matter who's looking at that video, they can walk away with something a little bit different because they're looking at it through their lens. How do you think this has impacted the students when they go to these places and they walk away and they go into industry, how is it different than if they would just had a traditional classroom? Fear. What do you mean? This thing called fear, which we're still trying to quantify. Most students who come up through the university, um, and this isn't a fault of the university at all, they don't think they can change the world. And um, they're there to get an education and everything else. And really and truly is that through this program, for some reason, somehow, we can show them that they can do these things. These things are possible. Now, keep in mind, there are many times when we've sat down with students crying, bawling because the projects are too hard. 
and we'll go through there and write up and it may be a two page project description for hydroelectric is a good example of that where we've actually had the project manager break down with Chris Classing and I, he's, he's a industry advisor from Greenville. And they're just explaining, this is too hard. We can't do this. And we're like, yes, you can. And we walk them how to, through how to solve that problem. And when they get done with it, they walk away with a sense of pride. When the students go down and they visit Conj and they see it firsthand, a lot of these pieces that were abstract before become real. And then the select few who are chosen, chosen to become interns, they go down there and live. They go through phases when they're down there and they're down there for seven months. Some of them stay for 12 months. Okay. They don't know the language. They don't know the culture. They don't know who to talk to, to buy materials. They don't, I mean, they're, they go in there at a base level. They go through there and they learn the language. They learn how to work with people. They learn how to manage a project. They learn how to run a schedule. They learn how to manage money. They know how to oversee engineering in the field. They know how to work with people. They understand quality control. They understand all of these things. And when they get done, every one of those students, I could drop anywhere on earth and I would not worry about them. The point is it prepares them for anything in life after that. Because if you can do a project in Haiti, in the central plateau of Haiti, you can do a work anywhere on earth. And let's talk about that. So my final narrative that we exposed was the steps you take here, you can change the world. Mm -hmm. And we showcased the steps. Mm -hmm. We showcased Aaron running up and down the steps. We showcased him run mirroring those metaphoric steps inside Haiti to the steps he was making here in America. Mm -hmm. So there's this metaphor of steps and taking the, the next step and walking up the steps because for people to understand the gravity of what happens there, they have to understand and feel the true gravity of the steps. Mm -hmm. I remember walking those 534 steps the first time and I about died. Mm-hmm. And you told me he was, you were like, Bobby, don't run up the steps. Do it like the Haitian people. I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to run up the steps. I get a quarter way up and I'm about dead. You have to talk me all the way up. Mm -hmm. And then the second time I go back, I do what the Haitian people do. I take my time. I slowly walk up. I watch them walk the steps mm -hmm. and have community and have conversation. Mm -hmm. And so the steps we spent a lot of time thinking through that narrative and showing that inside these videos of showing how people stopped and talked and the collaboration and how people work together. And we use the steps as a metaphor to break down this idea of white privilege and white savior. Mm -hmm. How intentional were our conversations behind that? I think very intentional. It's, um, there's been a lot of books that have been written and, and there's a lot of propaganda out about those subjects. The reality is, is that when you go down there and you see how we work with the locals, I mean, we may advise and everything else, but I mean, they're the ones who are doing the work. Um, you know, we win when they don't need us anymore. Okay. So we're literally trying to find ways to transfer that knowledge um, and finding those right people who basically can carry these things forward. But, you know, what's so interesting about all of this is that this concept of a win-win strategy and, you know, the student that goes down there to work 
wins because they're thrown into a situation that they've never dealt with before. But when they come out, they're 10 times stronger than they were before. The locals who were working hand in hand, you know, on those projects, they gain benefit for by getting clean water or they might be on the water team. They might be getting some level of pay. Um, but the community in general wins. We also have the donors like the Episcopal Diocese of Upper South Carolina who are sending money down. And if you remember after the earthquake, all that money was consumed by administration or the corruption or whatever else. Because of the situation, they had 100% accountability for their funds. They knew exactly where the money was, and it all went into the project. Okay, um, Clemson wins because now we have a program that's better preparing students for the future, and they're able to tell that story. And industry wins. So the point is, is that in life, years ago, I always thought you had to have a winner and a loser. You know, in project management, you would go out, bid out a job, and either the client got the better deal or the contractor got the better deal. Someone, it was always a winner and a loser. Okay. In this situation, everyone wins. It makes it a no-brainer going forward. And so the point is that I think there's something special here. There's a story that needs to be told because what this does is this not only changes our educational system of how we educate, but it improves our students of the future. It improves what industry can expect, okay? But it also can actually solve real-world problems that, you know, right now, a lot of the folks that are out there working with the UNWHO are not very technical. We've got students who have these capabilities who can plug in and solve these real world problems. So I really think what it is, is what we're doing is we're basically crosswalking the needs. And if we can do that effectively, we will change the world. Ladies and gentlemen, David Vaughn, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, a podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health. Have a good day.